Amen. Good morning. All right, if you guys would, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah. If you need a Bible, there's one on the chairs in front of you, and it is on page 793. And, uh, or unless you're in the front row, then you've got to go behind that. Good, good, good grab. All right. So, Zechariah, as we said earlier, if you don't have a notebook, there should be a, 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 note, a, a piece of notepaper in the back of the chair. We would encourage you. Take notes. It is a proven fact that you remember more, retain more when you take notes. Plus, you can always go back and reread them. At the end of the message, we'll talk about what is one takeaway, something you learned today that you can apply to your life, something you can take and use maybe in the week to come. And so as we open up, this is going to be one of two messages in Zechariah. Zechariah is the longest minor prophet. It is the length of Daniel, who is considered a major prophet, and yet, uh, and yet it's in the Minor Prophets, for whatever reason, whenever people made up nicknames for sections, right? And so the Minor Prophets are not called Minor Prophets because their message is unimportant. It's just because they're typically smaller books. So Zechariah being larger, and it exists really around two different time frames for the people of God. And so we're going to do two messages, one from the first time frame, one from the second. And so we'll do Zechariah part two next week. So I want to run backwards through this so you have kind of a timeline. If you start out a thousand years before Jesus and go to about 400 years before Jesus, it's this timeline. And you see the kingdom, the northern southern kingdom splits in half. Israel and the northern kingdom, Judah's the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is not very obedient to God. And again, they have about 20 kings before they're destroyed. None of those kings lead them away from idolatry and towards God. So they end up being destroyed by Assyria. And we see Amos call out to them. Uh, Hosea speaks to them. And then what you have is also Assyria conquers some of Judah. But in the middle of that, a king repents and calls his people to repent. And God gives them another, I think it's roughly 20 years. And so, and then eventually, Babylon comes in and conquers Jerusalem. Many of you are familiar with the story of Daniel, the story of the exiles. We follow Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. We follow those, at least those four, through a, a portion of the exile. And what happens is when Babylon conquers Jerusalem, what's left of Judah, they capture them, they take them as slaves into Babylon. And that's where we pick up the story of Daniel. And so they're there for roughly 70 years. From the time the city is sacked and the temple is destroyed, they're gone for about 70 years. And then as God promised through the prophet Jeremiah that they would return, Ezekiel also, Ezekiel's a, a contemporary of Daniel, exists in the exile. And so the, the deal is, if you will repent and return to me, I'll return you to your land. But a couple generations go by, and they're not really listening. Maybe they're mad at God for the destruction that's happened. They don't, but as they begin to, as God had promised even through the prophet Isaiah, that there would be a, a king, a new king, who would conquer Babylon and release the people. And so that happens. It's about 539, so about 540 years before Jesus, a new king from the Middle Persian Empire, or the Medes, releases some of the Jews to go back and build a temple for God. So all along, God is using even foreign nations, nations opposed to God, God is using those nations to achieve what he has, right? What he desires. God can use anything. God can use you. God can use me. God can use the atheist down the street. God can use whatever God desires to, to accomplish his goals. And in this case, he uses a lot of times nations that are opposing him to do his will. And so we get through the exile and Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They both exist at the same time, in the same place, speaking to the same people. So we'll get Haggai in two weeks, right? And so now here's where we are in the story. So the first wave of exiles have returned back to Jerusalem. So after being captured and being in captivity for about 70 years, God calls a king named Cyrus to release the first wave of returning exiles. And a leader named Zerubbabel 
Now, Babel, right, Zerubbabel, like born in Babylon, kind of what his name means. Like he's born in exile, but God uses him to return the first wave of exiles. There's three waves, three returning groups. So this is the first one, and then it's many years before they start again. If you remember, a couple years ago, we did Ezra and Nehemiah. I think we did. We started them outside and eventually ended up inside. And that was this returning group of people who began to rebuild. They rebuild first the temple, then their homes, and then the walls around the city. And we talked about how God is rebuilding their worship, their family, and then their community. And so this is that time. It's that first wave of returning exiles. Now, Zechariah is going to speak to the people because God called them to go rebuild the temple. They lay the foundation, like the concrete, to the temple, but then they get some opposition. There's some infighting, and then there's some other people kind of threatening them, and they stop. And they stop building the temple for about 20 years. And so God has called them, released them, used another king, sent them back. They lay the foundation for it, and then everything grinds to a halt because they get a little pushback, a lot of pushback, from the people around them. That's where the story picks up today. So I'm going to give you a main idea. The main idea today is return to me and I will return to you. God speaks to the remnant in Jerusalem who began rebuilding the temple but stopped when opposition came to return to building. Here's what I want you to hear. Being physically present is not the same as being obedient. God requires our obedience. So they've returned to Jerusalem. They are physically in Jerusalem, but they've stopped doing what God has called them to do. So being physically present is not enough. Obedience is what God requires. Obviously, we can apply that to ourselves today. Being here does not fulfill what God has called us to. Obedience is what is required. So Zechariah, we're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to do a little bit of the intro. And then let me break out the book for you. The first half of the book, there are eight what they call night visions. Zechariah is woken up eight times in the middle of the night by an angel to give him a vision we're going to do the third one today. But in the beginning, we have this introduction with the eight visions, and then there's some messages on the back end. We'll do one of those next week, all right? So Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, now here's, we identify the prophet Zechariah, right? And the timeline is the issue of the temple. So the timeline's very specific. Remember last week we said Joel is unclear, there's no Joel during the first reign or the second year or the fourth month of this. There's none of that, right? Here, very specific, and the book of Ezra in chapter 3 also puts Zechariah and Haggai right in the story. So this is very clear when this one happens. So Zechariah, right there, as the work has stopped around the temple and has been stopped, this is where God speaks to Zechariah. Verse 2, he says, The Lord was very angry with your fathers, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I think it's something like 53 times the Lord of hosts is God's name in Zechariah. And the Lord of hosts here, really hosts, means like the, the God of, of great armies, like the, the hosts of people, like you heard in Revelation, the, all the hosts of angels, like a massive amount. And it, what it really does is it reminds us that God is bigger over, sovereign over, authoritative over all on earth, whether that be God's people or not God's people, that God is over all. So the background here is their fathers, even as we looked at this, as we talked about the disobedience of both the northern and southern kingdom. And just even in the split of the kingdoms, imagine this. These are all supposed to be God's people, led by God, same rules, same things. And God's people couldn't get along so much they separated, right? Twelve tribes separated, ten to the north, two to the south. You can't really be following God that well and separate with your own brothers, if you will. And so even in that, we see the disobedience. Then we see the prophets calling out to them to turn from their evil. And their, their evil is simply described as they wanted to be like the world around them more than they wanted to be like God's people. So they wanted to look and act and talk and be like 
the people around them who worshipped idols or didn't worship God at all, who disobey or who live as they think is right or feel is right or want to do. And so that's the main sin of the people. And that bled into idolatry and injustices, things like that. But the basic idea is that they were supposed to live as God's people, distinct and unique and other than the people around them. And they just didn't. They wanted to be like the world they lived in. So the call is to return to God, right? We saw Hosea call the people like unfaithful wives, and that's a generous version of what was said there, right? Micah spoke about false prophets and corrupt leaders, prophets and leaders that if you paid them money, they'd give you, oh, God said these great things to you. But if you didn't pay them, they're like, God says judgment for you, right? They were false and corrupt. Zephaniah talks about judgment against Judah, but saving a remnant. Joel, last week we talked about promised restoration if the people would just repent. Remember, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, says God. All you got to do is return to me or repent. And then today's message, return to me and I will return to you. You see, throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, we call this covenant theology, that, that God covenants with people, that God covenanted with himself to save humanity, that the promise of Jesus first is a promise God makes to himself, that, that is just to please him. But then as we live that out, God makes a covenant with humanity, different people groups. In the Old Testament, often we find with Israel. He says, like, here's the relationship. If you do this, I will be your God. In the New Testament, Jesus tees off kind of that, that moment around communion where he says, a, a new covenant I make with you in my blood, that you become my people. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But as the people don't obey the covenant, then God says, listen, then I lift my blessing off of you. But if you remain obedient, if you do what I call you to do, and, and, and again, not perfectly, none of us are perfect, but when you live towards this, God says, I'll be your God. I'll bless you. I'll protect you. I'll keep you. You'll have plenty to eat. When the rains come, they'll give you a harvest. And so they've been living in this, and when they've been disobedient, God just simply just lifts his hand off them. And then ultimately causes their destruction. And now they're in this pocket where they're returning back to their land. Where God is kind of restating, listen, remember the deal. If you obey me, I will, I will bless you. Right? Return to me, and I'll return to you. So the church today needs to hear this too. We must hear, for a, we must hear a call for our obedience. Right, just to show up on a Sunday does not make us obedient. Right, to live in community, to obey, to do what God has called us to do, to not do what God has told us not to do, to live in that obedience. Verse 4, God says, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So let's walk through that covenant relationship a little bit. Old Testament, New Testament, a consistent pattern or a consistent language is that we live in a covenant relationship with God, right? That God makes a covenant with a people group, starts out with the, with the Hebrews, the, the Jews in the desert, in the exile, as they move into the land. Jesus then does that with the church. And so let's walk through that for a minute. Exodus 19 says this, says God speaking right before he gives the Ten Commandments. He says, now therefore... If you will indeed, there's the if, right? If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if you're obedient, you'll be my special group of people. I will use you to reach the rest of the world. Now, you can't possibly do that if you're not being obedient, right? You can't be disobedient, living the way you want to, and be a good light for the creator of the universe, right? A good witness for him. So if you will do this, I will bless you and use you to reach others. Second Chronicles, as Solomon has erected the temple, the very thing that gets destroyed that they're going to rebuild here that we're talking about in Zechariah. God says, listen, when the people go astray, here's what you do to return. Second Chronicles 7.14, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land, right? 
when they go astray, here's how they return. Because you're not going to be perfect, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you when you're missing, I'll call you back, and you can return to me, right? Humble yourselves, pray, seek my face, turn from your wicked ways. Then I'll hear, I'll forgive, I'll heal, right? As we go on to the New Testament, that very same covenant people idea is taken and given to the church. Here it is in 1 Peter. You are a chosen, this is applied to a multi-ethnic group of people in the church. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, you, the church now, become a holy nation, a royal priesthood a people who are a light to the world. So here's a note for you. The church is a covenant people. Jesus gives us a new covenant secured by his blood, liberating us from sin and calling us to obedience. We do not worship as we choose, but as scripture commands. Covenant defines relationship and responsibility. Like Jesus says, here's what I've done for you. It's in my blood. I gave my life for you. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. This is how you follow me. So we live inside that relationship, the relationship, the covenant that only God can, only God can do because it's greater than we could accomplish. He does it. But then there's relationship and responsibility that he calls us to. So let's reread verse 4 again. So do not be like your father's to whom the former prophets cried out, right? Don't be like the generations before you that when the prophets came to them, they ignored them, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So how did the Old Testament people disobey God? Just jotted down a quick list. They wanted to be like the nations, not like God's people. They worshiped idols instead of God. They honored or gave fear or respect or trusted in military power instead of spiritual faithfulness. You gotta remember, like God conquered Jericho without a single soldier doing anything, right? Like God has shown them, I'm bigger than armies, but they will trust in people, not in God. And I think we struggle with that too. They took God's symbols, but didn't observe God's rules. In other words, they would celebrate Passover but they wouldn't keep the rules. They would celebrate circumcision. Even that they drifted away from. They ended up drifting away from keeping the covenant symbols as well. They didn't obey God's commands about loving him, and they didn't obey God's commands about loving one another. Right? They oppressed and persecuted their own. They didn't love God. They worshiped other things. So in the modern-day church, how do we do this? And here's a few things. Easy believism, right? Lacking in true conversion. Easy. Do we just say, oh, grace, or like, I believe. In other words, I could just say I'm a Christian, but I don't have to do anything, right? Like, I'm present, but I don't have to be obedient. We just call that easy believism. Well, I say I believe, but I don't live in line with Scripture, right? We lack a true conversion to following Jesus. Gospel that is eternal, but not worshiping God today. So we have this gospel idea that, oh, this thing that gets us to heaven but doesn't matter today, right? The gospel should include us into a relationship, into a family, into a lifestyle today, and yes, gets us eternally, but eternity begins today. If heaven is secured, then I don't have to obey God today. I have time. That's another problem in the church today. We all think we have time. The covenant community of God is less important than the individual, right? When we make our lives and our faith more about us, or more about us and just our family. Oh, that's more important than the community of faith. Accomplishing God's work by human means. A good example is politics, right? We try and accomplish what God would have us do by trying to vote in or legislate in right and wrong. That doesn't change hearts, right? Modern idolatry is financial and human security-based. We place more trust in what we can touch or feel or hang on to than we do in God. And we treat the modern church like it's an organization, not a body of people. Right? So there's Old Testament ways, and they're very similar to what we say the church does. 
Maybe the idols are different. Maybe they actually bowed down to a little golden, you know, idol of some sort, and maybe we just do it to finances or something else. It was the same idea. And so Old Testament, New Testament, Israel, church, same ideas. Verse 5. God says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I've commanded my servants, the prophets, did, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repent and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So the people of the past failed, and the people of the present are learning to repent. Now, if you're not familiar with repent, repent's probably not used anywhere other than scripture nowadays, but it just basically means turning from sin. So if you're going this way and it's the wrong way, repent literally means turn 180 degrees and go the other way. You're going away from Jesus, repent, turn, go towards Jesus. That's the idea. So an opportunity to repent. We'll put this note on the screen. Where scripture corrects those who worship God, we have an opportunity to check our own lives and if necessary, repent. The gospel is an ongoing call towards a life of repentance and a promise of restoration through Christ. So here's the thing about repentance. We'll never have fully arrived, right? As long as we're in this flesh, on this planet, in this world, right? In this human age, we will never be perfect, right? We will always strive to live towards Jesus. That means that we will always live a life of repentance. As we draw nearer and nearer to Christ, it will look different but we will always be in need of repenting. And, and the upside of repentance is God is always desiring to restore more, give more relationship to us. So the beauty of Scripture is we get to read about how people have fallen short and how God calls them to be and what God does with them and learn those lessons and live in light of them. It's like parenting. We try and pass on to our young people, whether it be your kids or people in the church or people you mentor, disciple. We try and pass on our mistakes so they don't make our mistakes. Because either you can learn from your own mistakes or you can learn from my stupidity, my dumb mistakes, and not do them, right? Scripture is like that. It gives us the opportunity to learn from someone else and apply it to our lives. All right, skip ahead, if you would, to chapter 3. So this is the third of eight visions that God gives Zechariah, and the Bible calls them the night visions. He goes to bed one night, falls asleep, and God wakes him up. An interpreting angel, there's a couple angels, we'll talk about that, but an angel who kind of walks him through these visions is going to wake him up, keep waking him up, and teaching him things. Now, we're in this part right now where they've read, the people of God have returned back to Jerusalem and it's been about 20 years. They laid the foundation for the temple. Because of opposition, they stopped. And God called them to build a temple, not start to build the temple. Right? Modern day language. It's like God calls us to build a church, and we lay the concrete. We snap a few lines like stuff's going to go here. And then people give us a hard time, and we stop. 20 years later, they're still stopped. And God is speaking to Zechariah and also to Haggai, a contemporary that we'll see in two weeks, about them finishing the work. <laughs> Evidently, I need a little help today. So, <laughs> Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. Here's what I want to do. I'm gonna, I want to define some of those people in the vision, and then I want to read it again. All right? So then he, the interpreting angel, showed me that's Zechariah, Joshua the high priest. Joshua was literally the high priest at the time. Now, the high priest is the like, lead pastor. It's like the person who oversees the priesthood and has some very important roles. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, not something they're doing right now because they haven't built it, right? And so there's this need for them to do that. This would be the guy who does it as they build it. So if they build it, then it will be his job. So standing before the angel of the Lord. Now I want you to note this. Whenever the definite article the exists, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, not an angel named such and such, the angel of the Lord, it is what we call a pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, it is Jesus before Jesus becomes Jesus. You with me? 
because that last sentence was totally clarifying. It is Jesus who is the second person of the Trinity, God who becomes flesh, right? God who becomes human for us. But before he comes human, pre-incarnate, Christ, right? Pre-incarnate, Jesus. So it is Jesus in the vision. You with me? And Jesus will speak in a minute, and that will help us. Standing before the angel Lord and Satan. Satan isn't, by the way, a proper name or the way we use it. Satan is a word that means accuser, one who accuses God's people, but Satan, so the devil, accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here's who that is. So God shows Zechariah a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before Jesus, the angel of the Lord, being accused by Satan. Okay, let's read that again. So the Lord, uh, verse one, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Verse two, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So either Jesus or God himself in the vision speaks. And I says, the Lord speaks. In a minute, it'll clarify, Jesus will speak. But God says about this, right? Does it, so notice that Satan is there to accuse Joshua. God doesn't even let him speak. I kind of like that part, right? He's there to accuse, but God just intervenes, right? As Joshua, the high priest, is standing there. And this gives him this image of a brand or a fiery stick. So think brand, like branding an animal, like you heat up a brand to brand, like a fiery stick would be, you know, this long ago, right? So Joshua's the brand, this burning stick that is plucked from the fire. The fire is the exile that they've been in. So Joshua's born in exile. Now, here's why this is important. He was born in a foreign nation, a pagan nation, a nation that does not worship God. And so, really kind of by nature, he is kind of soiled from being in these foreign nations, if you will. So, in some ways, he is viewed as not able to stand before God and represent the people. And so, that's what Satan wants to accuse him of, is that he's not worthy. Because he was born in these foreign nations, he's just come back, how can he possibly be worthy? But God steps in and rebukes Satan for that very idea. All right, verse 3. Now Joshua is standing before the angel, that's Jesus, clothed with filthy garments. Joshua is clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, so Jesus speaks, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have, notice, I have taken, right? So only Jesus or, or God could say this. So this is Jesus. Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So the filthy garments represent the particular sins of being in the world and like the world. Now, it's not really an accusation of Joshua the high priest for his sin. It's for him being from a place that is sinful. And what Satan is trying to say is he's not qualified. He's trying to shake Joshua the high priest. But God is giving... Now, remember, this is a vision. This isn't truly happening. This is just a vision that God is giving Zechariah. The point of the vision really is not Joshua. The point of the vision is the angel of the Lord, Jesus speaking. And when he speaks and he says this, he says, remove the filthy garments, right? And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Iniquity is like guilt or shame or that kind of the penalty associated with sin. I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Since we just came out of Revelation, I was thinking about Revelation 3 when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, and he says, to the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, right? I will take away your sinful exterior, and I will clothe you with righteousness. So the angel of the Lord, Jesus, is speaking, and is speaking on behalf of God, and something only God can do. Only God can take away our sin and shame. And so again, the angel of the Lord, always, always, always important to notice that. Jesus calls for Joshua to have his dirty clothes removed and then declares, I have taken away your iniquity. So let me read it again. Verse 3, before, now Joshua was standing before the angel and clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, 
he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Remember before we started this series, we looked at Jesus' words in Luke 23, and he said that all the law and the prophets point to me. Jesus said, listen, they're all pointing to me. And this very vision here couldn't be much clearer. As Jesus says, I take away your iniquity. See, so the gospel message in, it, in its simplest form is that God created us. God created you and me. God created these people. God created the first people. That God created humanity. And that in that creation, God designs us. And what I mean by that is God creates how we are to live. God says, this is right. This is wrong. God sets that in place. And he, he gives us how we were made to live. This morning, I was leaving my house, and the rain had just started, right? And I went out, and I found a puddle, and being a faithful Jeep owner, I hit it as hard as I could. <laughs> I don't recommend that maybe Ashley does that in the Tesla, right? I mean, like, it's not the same thing. Know what you're built for, right? Better gas mileage, terrible gas mileage. Puddles, no puddles, right? And, and that's kind of God's design, the, the purpose of us in a much more spiritual way. There's how we're made to be and how we're not made to be. And God created, God gets to design, God gets to give that to us. Here's how you're to be. And then sin is us living opposite of that, contrary to that, doing things that please us and don't please God. And so all of us have sinned. So we've all sinned. We inherit sin, and then we sin, we add to the problem, it's no wonder the world is broken. It's littered with sin, right? That we just continue to pile sin upon sin, and we can't stop it. God has to intervene. See, once you're broken and dead spiritually, you can't fix it. So God has to fix it. So God himself, Jesus, becomes human, enters into human history 2,000 years ago in flesh, not in, not in a royal palace, not with lots of money, comes into a poor and humble family and lives a common, normal life. But he does so without sin. He does so fulfilling what God has called us to, lives the perfect life, and then goes and gives his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. God himself gives himself as a sacrifice for you and me, suffers pain, suffers death, endures for us. So that all the dumb things we have done, all the sinful things we have done, all the times we have chosen to do the wrong thing, Jesus takes that upon himself. And as Luther famously wrote about the great exchange, that at the cross, we bring all our guilt and iniquity and shame and junk and we exchange it for the righteousness of Christ. That his perfectness, his righteousness, his holiness, his obedience, his godliness, all is given to us. They become ours in the gospel. That we may then live a different life if we will walk in the gospel. Jesus dies covering our sin. He resurrects to give us that new life. He ascends back to heaven. He pours out his spirit on us his people. The expectations we live in that covenant relationship now, empowered by the Spirit, cleansed of iniquity, and that we live a life in Christ. Let me run through two quick verses. Psalm 103 says this. It says, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Here's what he's saying. That when you become truly in Christ, when you begin to follow Jesus, Jesus has transformed you, made you new, you've converted, you've become new, that your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west, like in a straight line that goes on forever. He says his love is as great as the distance from the earth to the heavens above. He says he removes your transgression, your iniquity. Basically what he's saying is your life no longer must be defined by your worst decisions, but rather your life gets to be defined by Christ's greatest decisions. His victories become yours. Your failures are removed. You get to be new if you are in Christ. And, and here's that part we've got to ask because the church struggles with this today. What does it mean to be in Christ? 
Well, to be in Christ means to be converted, to be changed, to be different, to be given new life. It is not just to mentally ascend to the fact that there is a Jesus, but it's to live a life following Jesus, empowered by his spirit, that you are made brand new. Ephesians 1 says this, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth, and his there is God's, God's purpose that he set forth in Christ. Right, that God saves us by the work accomplished by Christ, applies it to us by the Holy Spirit that we might become new. That we are no longer defined by who we were, but now defined by Christ. That means we will look different. You don't have to have just some crazy background like mine where it's that extreme, but where you live a new life. It should be definable that you've been transformed, changed, empowered. Verse 5 says this. And I said, let them put a, this is Zechariah, by the way, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus, was standing by. I love that Zechariah joins in. Like, he needs a hat. <laughs> so the priest had turbans. And evidently, Joshua, the high priest in this vision, has been given new garments, clothes. And Zechariah's like, what about the hat? And he's a new hat. I just love that Zechariah jumps in. Listen, I say all kinds of dumb things. Nobody has to agree. I say a lot of dumb things, so I feel better when I see these funny statements, right? Peter makes me feel better about myself. Zechariah here in this moment makes me feel somewhat normal, all right? Verse 6, and the angel of the Lord, so Jesus solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This is what we call in language, right, an if-then conditional clause. If you're an English teacher, that's familiar. I didn't learn English until I took Greek, to be honest with you, and learned these clauses. So if you will walk in my ways, then here's what you get. So if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. In other words, if you will be obedient, Jesus tells Joshua, then here's what you will get. He gives him three things. He said, you shall rule my house, right? Because he's going to be the high priest. He's qualified to, if he's obedient, he's qualified to be the high priest. You'll have charge of my courts. That's more about the justice system, that you'll have charge of what is right and mercy and justice, and I will give you the right of access. You will have the presence of God. You will have access to the very presence of God. If you will be obedient, walk how I tell you to walk, right? You can lead spiritually. You can make sure justice happens, and the presence of God will be with you. Right? That, in some ways, is given to all of us if we are obedient. Right? That we can lead spiritually. That dads and moms, you can shepherd your homes. That if you want to be an elder of the church or, or a pastor or whatever, like, those things come through relationship and obedience. They don't come, just, they don't come through gift sets. Right? There's, here's a prerequisite. You've got to walk with Jesus first. Then we figure it out. Right? And it's the same idea. In order to teach your kids, you can't just tell them what it is there to do, you must live it. Because if you don't live it, they will live like you live no matter what you say. Right? They will see how you live, and they will know that that's what you truly believe, not what you say. Justice, mercy comes and flows out of the gospel. Right? The presence of God, the very presence of God both within us and around us comes from obedience. So one more time, verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So here's a note we'll put on the screen. The church is a covenant people. Jesus gives us a new covenant secured by his blood, liberating us from sin and calling us to obedience. We do not worship as we choose, but as scripture commands. Covenant defines relationship and responsibility. We put that up earlier, right? Like, here's the deal. Like, if you do this, then this, right? Covenant relationship is defined by Scripture. Here is your relationship. Here's what God promises you. Here's what you're called to do in response. Verse 8, 
It says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, here's where it gets really good. Right? All of this has been great. All of this is across the board for them in their day, just like prophecy always was, or most of the time always was, also very applicable to us. But as we learned in Luke before we started this series, as we've emphasized each week, the prophets all point to Jesus. The law all points to Jesus. The feasts, the festivals all point to Jesus. So here it is. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. There's different ways this is written. The branch, the root, the vine, the shoot. All of them point to Jesus. Right? Jesus is called all those things throughout Scripture. So Joshua is the temporary priest. Right? He's the brand, the fiery stick that came out of the exile stick, right? But Jesus will come. He is the branch, right? Jesus will come and be the fulfillment of the high priesthood forever. Here's a verse out of Hebrews that will kind of help us see this. Since then, we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, what we are to do. For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. In other words, became flesh, lived in this world, except yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When Jesus said all the law and the prophets point to me, he didn't just mean when the prophets say the branch will come, that one will come that is the branch. He didn't just mean that. He meant actually everything in the law. The law called for a high priest to come and be a mediator. A high priest that would literally be the mediator between God and humanity. Especially on the Day of Atonement where he would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. This was that day where they put bells on his robe and tied a rope on him. And as long as they heard the bells going on inside, everything was good. But the bells stopped, they pulled him out because he was likely dead for going into the presence of God wrongly. Talk about covenant people, we're called to be obedient. We don't get to approach God any way we want to, we're called to do it as God teaches us. And so the high priest was that mediator who would offer sacrifice and, and, and be that mediator between God and the people. Well, that is all fulfilled in Christ. That's why we don't need a priesthood anymore. That's why we have pastors and elders, deacons to help lead and we have that because we don't need a mediator. We don't have a need for a priesthood because Jesus is our high priest. Jesus, who experienced all that we experience except without sin, is now our mediator between God and humanity. So verse 8, we'll restart there. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So I will bring Jesus, verse 9, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes, also referring to Jesus. We just won't get into that today. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I want you to hear this. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Here's what God says to Zechariah to tell the people, listen, you have Joshua the high priest and I have made him I have called him. I have cleansed him. I have redressed him in righteousness to be your mediator. I have washed away the sins and the guilt of the world, and I will use him. Now, Joshua's imperfect. Joshua will sin. Joshua will need to offer sacrifice and cleansing every time he goes to do his job because he's imperfect. Because he must live in repentance too. But then in light of that will come the great high priest Jesus, the branch by which other branches and roots and leaves and vines will come from. And God says, I will bring the branch and he will be, he will provide, he will become your forgiveness. He will take away your iniquities. And then it closes with this. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine, under his figure tree. Notice that now the imagery becomes used for us. That's why I want to wrap this up today. So I want to read I think the clearest verse in Jesus' own words about how this applies to us. So let me back up first. We have Jesus present, taking away sin from those who are called by God. 
Joshua is literally redressed in this vision, including a hat, right? That he is cleaned up by Jesus, equipped or, or made competent or worthy of the job that God has called him to. So let me pause. Whatever God has called you to, he will make you equipped or worthy to do. Right? The requirement is that we live in obedience, that we live in that covenant that God's given to us. That we understand God's job, and we understand our role in response. It says, and then I will replace this temporary flawed priesthood. I will bring Jesus who will fulfill it forever. I will bring the branch, not just this little fiery stick that needs to be cleaned up. And the branch, from the branch, you will become little vines, little branches, little twigs, little things that shoot off of the branch. So Jesus, using this language as he walks and talks with his disciples, says this in John chapter 15. He says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He goes on, he says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, listen, I am the root and the source of all that gives life to you. If you're going to bear fruit in life, if you're going to produce something of spiritual value, Jesus says, it's because you abide in me. Abide is another word for remain or stay connected to or draw your life and source from. Like if you take a tree and you see this branch coming out here and then a, a shoot coming out here with leaves or with fruit, all of that gets its nourishment and source from that trunk or that, that, that part that feeds all the rest of it. Jesus is saying, I'm that. I'm the part that feeds you. That if you cut that off, it'll die. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. So he teaches them, abide in me and I in you. Stay connected. He teaches them, just not are we called to do, not are we called, just, just called to be obedient, but the source of our obedience comes from Christ. See, the gospel is not just this thing that introduces us to God and then sets us aside for heaven later, maybe. But it is the very source of life that we live and stand and breathe in, in every day. It's the very source to survive today, not just something for the future. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says something to the effect of, remember the gospel that I preached to you, the one in which you believed and you stand in. He kind of does this, this kind of present, past, future tense use of the gospel. Here at Generations, we say we never leave the gospel. The power of the gospel is the very power for everything. It is what God has ordained for us, what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's what the Holy Spirit applies to us when we remain in the gospel. When we learn to overcome sin, we live in repentance, we lean into the strength of Jesus who didn't cave in to sin, applied to us by the Spirit. We overcome addiction or struggle or pain or grief or hurt it's because of the gospel. When we set aside the things of the world, it's because of the gospel. We live in the power of the God. We never leave the gospel. So Jesus says, abide in me, and I remain connected to me every day, every minute, every hour. Remain connected to me. I and you, you and me, collectively together, us together with Jesus, remain there. Don't go and try and accomplish what God is calling, to you, calling you to on your own. Stay connected to Jesus. If God is requiring of you to repent of sin, do it in the power of the gospel. Do it in relationship with Jesus. Don't go, okay, God has told me this. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to try really hard to do it. We do it in relationship with Jesus. If God has called you to love one another, which he has, we don't go try and make friends. We just we love one another in the power and strength and equipping of the gospel. We never leave the gospel. So what do we do with this? Each week we talk about a takeaway. What is something you heard that you will take away and, and possibly use this week? I wrote down just a few ideas to prompt conversation. For me, I find that my faithfulness to Jesus is direct, directly related to my time with Jesus. When I'm not connected, I'm not faithful. My takeaway, be more connected.
remain connected to Jesus more. For those of you who have been Christians for a while, you all know the difference between trying to do hard to do things, trying hard in your own strength, and living a life in Christ. Discipling others and living in connectivity with Jesus is how we learn from you. You passing on how you remain connected, faithfully connected to Jesus. That's how we learn and grow. For those of you that may be more new to believing, you will work hard at your faith and struggle because you haven't learned how to connect with Jesus daily instead of struggle in your own strength. You will struggle and struggle with some successes maybe and a lot of losses when you do it in your own strength. Learn how to stay connected to Jesus daily. For those of you who have never made that profession of faith and been baptized and begun to follow Jesus, for, the, for you, the removal of sin and guilt and even struggles in the world come through Christ alone, not through trying hard to overcome things in this world. Kids and parents, teaching the families how to remain daily connected to Christ through church, prayer, scripture, etc., is an imperative while they're young so they can grow up knowing how to abide in Christ. Teaching our kids just not just right from wrong or what Jesus says to do and not do, but teaching them how to remain connected to the source of life through church, through prayer, through scripture, etc. That keeps them connected. Teach them when they're young. It won't leave them later. They will always know how to remain in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You have made us that promise that if we abide in you and you and us, that we will bear fruit. It's true because you supply, you provide, you equip. But God, I know I am completely guilty of you telling me what I need to do and then trying to accomplish it in my own strength. It's like, gotcha, I know what the plan is, I'm on it. And that's not what you've said. May we learn how to do it out of an overflow of our relationship, whether that's doing things you've called us to, serving in ministry capacities, loving one another, overcoming some, whatever it might be. May we do it out of an overflow of what you have already accomplished for us. May we do it out of a connectivity and relationship to you. May our daily time in the word, our daily time in prayer, alone and with others, may that strengthen us, Lord. May we see that image of Joshua, the high priest, who's standing there in his filthy garments and you taking away and saying, I've removed all your iniquities. I've reclothed you in holiness. And may we know that as long as we stay connected to the branch, we will be limbs that bear fruit and shine light for you, Lord. Forgive me for the mixing of metaphors there, but that may we learn that you are our source for everything we need. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Take a couple minutes. Talk to the people around you. What is one takeaway you learned today that's something you can apply maybe this week in your life?